0: We are looking forward to celebrating the Incarnation and uh, something we need to be doing throughout the year, celebrating not only Christ's coming, but then also His resurrection every single day. Uh, you know, uh, people talk about climate change, and that's all we got here. You know, the weather is crazy enough in Kansas that uh, it might, we might even have a white Christmas. And, uh, you know, if you look around, you know, these things don't just pop up. You know, we've got some very gifted people. And I'm going to leave somebody out, I'm sure. But I'm sure that Paulette and Beth and and Kathy and others have blessed us with this decoration. And if there are others, thank you so much. Let's give them a a round of applause. Yeah. I was blessed today because I get to wear my Christmas tie. (laughs) But I don't any other time of the year. and I, I love this tie. Uh, and and Christmas is certainly a time of rejoicing. It's a time of gathering as families. However, for some, it's also a time of loneliness when alienation and rejection by loved ones hit the hardest. And when family members are estranged, when there's conflict, it can really be discouraging. Memories of excited little ones singing away in the manger from one who is now left and does not communicate can be extremely painful. In the parable of the prodigal son, we can learn much about how to respond to such a child and any family member who walks away out of a good home. But as parents and grandparents, we can also find ourselves uh, not only with the one who leaves, but also reaction of other family members who find it difficult to forgive if and when that rebel returns with repentance. And last month uh, during our elder series, I was teaching about this parable of the prodigal sons from the perspective of the two brothers. And I really didn't address the father because of time constraints, but conveniently added him on to the series that I've been going through for the last year on head to heart, passing faith on to succeeding generations. I did that because I think it's important that we deal with this very, very practical issue. Uh, Both of the father's sons had a problem. Both were in slavery. The prodigal to self-indulgence in his flesh, the older son to self-righteousness in his spirit. And our prodigal of this parable really needs to involve a couple of different applications. Of course, Jesus' intent here was to convey how God the Father pursues his children and rejoices when they come home to him. But on another level, we can also take our cues from our Father, as represented by the Father in the parable in responding to our own children, who are either lost or unforgiving you see the father in this situation in this parable is not unlike many others i suspect when a solid first chair family has a child who simply checks out turns away from the family perhaps even renounces faith in the god of the bible taught in home and church of that very family in other words one may actually have a Cadillac, a BMW, or a Mercedes of a family. And then, all of a sudden, maybe unexpectedly, the wheels fall off of that shiny, nice Christian family. Uh, because I taught on, the, uh, the, the, on Luke 15 last time, you know, I'm not going to repeat a lot of the Scripture. This is going to be a little bit bible light, but... Uh, more practical, but also trying to understand God's love for his children. I need to uh, also give a little bit of a qualifier today. Uh, Speaking to young marriages or soon-to-be marriages, as we describe or discuss some of the problems of parenting, I don't want to send a message that children are just too much trouble. Yes, they do challenge us. They challenge our patience. They humble us. But that is God's way of building character in our lives. The Bible calls them gifts. Gifts are not entitlements. They must be received when offered. So for the young here who are in that stage of life, I highly recommend that you receive that gift if and while you can. I work with couples every day in adoption who cannot have children, often because they waited beyond their window of opportunity. Finally, I just need to say on a personal level, just say a little prayer for me because this message is a little bit hard for me personally. To to reset the stage here, last time we said that the context of this parable was the accusation by the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus received sinners, and he dines with them. And the response of Jesus to the accusation is three parables, each of which demonstrate God's joy in finding his lost. The lost are the burden of our Father who gave his only Son to pay the price for each one of us as children who repent of our sins. The Father does not just accept them. He looks for, he seeks them out eagerly, and he awaits the return of the lost. Therefore, within context, in the third parable about the prodigal son, the Pharisees and scribes are represented here by the older son. Of course, the lost by the prodigal, and that leaves the father to represent our father in heaven who longs for the lost. And so today, we all want to kind of assume the role of the father as parents or grandparents, And we hope to watch, study, and learn from this father who has to respond to both of his sons, different bros with similar woes. No doubt, some of you have experienced both of these problems, some, just one. If you haven't, or if you just happen to have wonderful children now and your parenting years all go well for you, that is wonderful. Wonderful. But remember, Lord willing, someday you will likely have grandchildren. And whether we want to or not, we are all likely to have to apply some of the principles that God teaches in this parable, if we haven't already. Now, we're going to spend most of our time, of course, with the prodigal, because that's the subject of the parable. But we're also going to look at the end, at God's uh, or the Father's response to his resentful brother. So let's start here with how, to, how we learn from this father about responding to children who walk away, the rebel. Of course, parents are responsible for their minor children. And speaking about rearing children, we usually talk about the importance of training, consistency, discipline, and most importantly, love and relationship from conception on. And there are many important principles to learn and apply in parenting. One of the most important ways to train the young, once they can understand cause and effect, is to allow them to experience the consequences of their actions. And we emphasize the importance of relationship with the young, rather than becoming the PBI, the Parental Bureau of Investigation. However, Some parents take this relationship thing a little too far because they become blind advocates, thinking little Johnny can do no wrong, okay? You can still be Johnny's biggest cheerleader without yelling at the coach when he pulls Johnny from the starting lineup and sits him for complaining to the ref about a foul call, the consequences of his actions. For every Christian parent... We want our children to not only have an enjoyable life, but more importantly, to live a life that honors the giver of life. And so to accomplish this, Scripture analogizes children as arrows, that parents are to prepare for flight and aim as best they can to hit the mark. And If you have children in your home, you should never stop learning how to be a more effective parent, to teach, to love and desire for God's best, for the rest of their lives. However, that is not our topic for today. Today, we're going to be addressing the reality of our imperfection and the lure and effects of sin and how to respond within, when it infects a family. In addition, as children mature, these human arrows naturally develop a guidance system of their own. And parents should look at that as an opportunity to help build that guidance system. In fact, we want them to own their convictions, their internal GPS, so to speak, because we know that they will launch out one day and we as parents will not control them upon release. Last thing any parent wants is for their child to be so dependent upon the guidance of the parent that when pushed out of the nest, they are lost and cannot make decisions due to their dependence upon parents. Counsel, yes. Dependence, no. And even when parents do a relatively good job, as far as they can tell, there are factors in addition to our mistakes beyond our control. Strong winds of the culture that can affect the trajectory of those arrows. Also, Parents don't always decide when the arrows depart. Sometimes they just jump out of the quiver on their own. And when that happens, before the guidance system is developed, before the archer has been able to completely pull back the bowstring and aim carefully, you know what will happen. The arrow is going to fall short of the target. Today, generally due to the legal obligations of parents for minors, we're going to address the adult or soon-to-be adult child uh, that decides to rebel and leave headed in the wrong direction and of course this is very very difficult as parents who have life experience know the destination will be pain and misery the consequences of their actions now various scenarios are much too numerous for me to to, to get into in general We know, of course, in raising a family that we cannot condone sin and we can't allow it to infect younger members of the family. But parents may have done the best to aim, to train in their guidance system, but the prodigal simply chooses to ignore or reject it. After leaving, this waiting period can be painful and confusing for parents, grandparents as well. I can't tell you how to respond to every situation I can say that in our family, as imperfect as it is, we have chosen to try to maintain a relationship. Relationship is not the same thing as condoning or enabling. Without that bridge of some relationship, it's hard to even start to rebuild. And if the children have not learned the consequences of their actions in the home, they will often learn from the reality they encounter as did the prodigal. So let's take a look at how this father wisely responded both before and after his son learned from the school of hard knocks. So on your outline there, uh, the first one is that he releases him. Now, we read last summer that when confronted by the son's demand for his inheritance, father gave it to him. And honestly, this is not something that many of us would do or even could afford to do if we were so inclined. But it's not impossible, and it makes the point that Jesus was trying to make with his accuser. Here he didn't put up a fight. He didn't speak words of impending doom to his son, as he certainly could have. He simply released, releasing him to step up to his own to face the uncertainty of his own future and the consequences of his own choices and actions. At some point, every parent faces that release, whether the child is prepared or not. So today, we're dealing with what we would call premature, misguided, or unprepared release. Of course, one would say that warning is kind of appropriate when a child is about to make a huge mistake. However, if the child has been trained and already has been taught the truth, knows how you feel, pleading and chastising the child as he or she is going out the door can not only be ineffective, it can be counterproductive. If a parent has have not trained the child in the consequences and developed that guidance system, it just might be too late that. But if they have, it may be better simply to remain calm, resist the temptation to wag the finger. If it's going to happen, the last thing you want to do is destroy the bridge to that loved one. If a parent says, you walk out that door, you're never coming back, well, they just might not. You may have confirmed exactly what or she thought about you as a parent and that likely would result in an even greater resolve for the child to prove that you are wrong. Likely the best thing a parent can do in such a crisis is to remain calm and express unconditional love. The child already knows what you think. He or she is making a mistake, maybe engaged in outright sin, but at this point There's not much point in argument. This father in this parable accepts him. Now, I want to speak to young people here. The simple act of leaving your parents' household is not sin. It really is the goal of most parents to shoot their arrows out (laughs) so the young person becomes responsible for him or herself. The training and mentoring by parents up to that point however, is really, really important. The question is, what happens when the parental restraints and accountability are diminished or gone? After the prodigal left, he made some poor choices, some really poor choices. He gave in to the appetites of the world, selfish desires, debauchery, even prostitutes, all manner of reckless living. In the end, he was destitute, desperate, and miserable. He definitely felt the consequences of his action. And like this wayward son, all of our children have been created with a will of their own. They have real choices to make between good and evil, God and Satan, righteousness and sin, and parents do not make those choices for them. Now, let's back up to pre-departure. It can be hard for parents to hear their children say that they do not agree with everything mom and dad believe, whether it's politics or how they were raised or how God works in the world or even the existence of God. And these divergent worldviews within the family are much more common today due to the many voices speaking into our children through the culture and devices that are with them all the time. But in reality, I think there's always been this tendency of young people to feel that they want to have their own ideas to become independent of their parents. And if parents see attitudes developing, I just want to make some suggestions on what to try before the young person checks out. The first is to recall your own thoughts and views at that age, like when you were wearing bell-bottoms and tie-dyed shirts, Uh, and how God's word or the love of another or just reality brought you back to the truth. Your young person has a will, and he or she is going to use it. And just like you, it often takes some time to come to the truth. Secondly, do some self-assessment and humbly as to whether your current stated views are properly balanced with the whole counsel of God. The fact that they we're older doesn't make us right, per se, but it simply means that we have less of an excuse for being out of balance. Thirdly, if your child is sending signals of rebellion, depending on the issue, it may not be worth losing your relationship by, by insisting that your young person accept your point of view. The young person may have to experience the consequences of their views and actions before coming to the realities of the world, just like the prodigal did. However, if you can have a real conversation without acrimony, uh, try not to be dogmatic. Rather, ask questions with a calm spirit, like, can you help me understand what you just said? Or how... How did you come to that conclusion? Help me understand. Then listen to their responses. If that child has a point, consider it. Give them credit for when it's due. If there is no logic or reason there, which is sometimes that's the case, it will become more apparent to the young person if given some time to chew on their own words, their own explanation, and reflect without escalating emotions from the rest of the family. Thirdly, and this one is really important, uphold them in prayer. The prodigal had reached an end of himself. His sin left him senseless and sore. He'd run into the wall of reality, and it was only then that he the scripture says, came to himself. And we discussed this last time about when one realizes his or her destitute state and desperate need for Christ, it is a coming to oneself. You cannot know yourself or relate properly to yourself if you're running away from the one who made yourself for himself. And while this son was living it up, wasting his life and his inheritance, where do you think the father was? I suspect he was on his knees in prolonged prayer, upholding his son before his father. A prodigal child can be lost, angry, and struggling to find his or her own identity, hardened on the outside, but deeply hurting within. And their choices not only damage them, but create heartache within the family and damage relationships with the people who love them the most. So parents should never give up on a wayward child, despite how tempting that often that option might be. Instead, they can entrust the life of their child to God, pray for the brokenness of that child, and fight for that child in prayer. So three prayers that you might consider. Pray for a heart of brokenness, no matter the earthly cause. I'm about to say something that may sound harsh, but I'd ask you to think about this. You know, it's incredibly hard to pray for anything but a comfortable, successful, pain-free life for our kids. But as Christian parents, we know that the greatest eternal good that we can pray for is their salvation over their earthly happiness and comfort. We have to fight for them in this world filled with temporary pleasures, self-gratification, blurry lines, entrusting trusting their lives to our Lord even if the path to salvation comes with pain and we'll only be bold enough to pray a prayer of brokenness over our children when they leave when we resolve ourselves to be broken before God and trust his love of our children and us it's only when we completely have surrendered our children to God that we can pray father Use what you must to save my child from an eternity apart from you, no matter the cost. None of us would pray for a tragedy to befall our own, I know. But let me ask you this question. Which is worse, for a child to come to Jesus after a life-altering tragedy or an eternity in hell. Secondly, pray against the enemy's desire to conquer and have that, that child. battle battle's being waged for our children. We have to fight for them in prayer, especially when blindness keeps them from fighting the battle themselves. Although we don't have any guarantee of our children's salvation or the outcome we may desire, we can be confident that God is faithful to keep his promises, and he hears our prayers. One of the greatest weapons we have that God has given is for parents to fight against the world's pull and the enemy's schemes over our children is to pray the way that Christ did for Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that you might, he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter was a believer, and the children we're praying for may or may not be. We can still pray to God that he would rescue our children from the power of Satan, give them faith in Christ, and use their lives to advance the gospel and strengthen other believers, learning from their own mistakes as we have. Pray specific scripture over the life of your child. Even if your child wants nothing to do with the truth or hates to hear the word of God, you, they can do nothing to stop you from praying scripture over them. This is another mighty weapon God has given. One passage that you might look at is Psalm 18, 16 through 19. And there it says, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me. They comforted and they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Yeah, parents, no matter how far your child seems to be from Jesus or what path they're on, you can fight for their life with a powerful weapon of God's word and your prayer. Truth is, While we must teach and train our children and put boundaries in place, we have no control over their hearts. Ultimately, God alone will fill their hearts with the love of Christ and open their eyes to the beauty and glory of who he is, and that should be our prayer. We are not helpless, and we are never hopeless. Whether our children are young or old, have soft or hard hearts, We have the power of prayer, God's living word, and the sovereign God we can trust. Our Father in heaven loves to take seemingly hopeless lives, like my own once was, and show himself merciful. Give your child the gift of prayer and trust that God will use his or her life for his good purposes, growing and transforming your own life in the process. This father waited. We don't know how long he waited. It doesn't say, but he certainly waited every day, expectantly, prayerfully, hopefully, patiently. And there are benefits to that. Romans 5 tells us that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. James 1 tells us, we are to rejoice in our trials because the trying of our faith produces steadfastness that we may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And so may God grant all of us as parents and grandparents of prodigals that kind of spirit-filled patience. And then finally, upon return, the Father receives him. I'm going to read that passage again just so we can Get a little bit more in depth. Starting in verse, in Luke 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants. Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring in his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son. My son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The day had finally come when the son came home. Now, in this father's situation, many fathers would say, I knew you would come back begging. But here, there was no finger wagging. Compassion propelled this father to his son. At a dead run, arms wide open. Love pouring forth, his heart overwhelmed. Now, the attitude of this father was what we would call extravagant joy. I can't express it anything close to the way that Charles Spurgeon did 130 years ago. He said, see the contrast. There is the son scarcely daring to think of embracing his father. Yet his father has scarcely seen him before he has fallen on his neck. The condescension of God towards penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a sinner. What a wonderful picture. Can you conceive it? I don't think you can. But if you cannot imagine it, I hope that you will realize it. When God's arm is about our neck and his lips are on our cheek, kissing us much, then we understand more than preachers and books can ever tell us of his condescending love. If you don't know him, what will you find when you turn home to God through Jesus Christ? If you do know him, what did you find? And are you enjoying what you found? Let's take a look at some of the pictures in this passage of God's welcoming his lost child home. Verse 20 of Luke 15, it says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, God is not too busy to be concerned, unconcerned about his lost and wandering, wandering children. Before anyone else sees, God sees. Again, Spurgeon puts it this way. There is a great deal in that word, saw. He saw who it was, saw where he had come from saw the swineherd's dress, saw the filth upon his hands and feet, saw his rags, saw his penitent looks, saw what he had been, saw what he was, and saw what he would soon be. His father saw him. God has a way of seeing men and women that you and I cannot understand. He sees right through us at a glance, as if we're made of glass. He sees our past, our present, and our future. So when I Myself, When I first recognized my state, my sin, and expressed faith in Christ's suffering on the cross to pay for my sins, my Father saw me. He saw the filth, the pride, the manipulation in my life, the evil within me. And yet, he opened his arms wide and embraced me, knowing full well that I would stumble and fall even after his mercy and grace was extended to me. When he saw him far off, he felt compassion for him. God is just like this. Some parents know the anguish of when a child runs away from home. When you see her walking back toward you, it releases a flood of emotion and longing and love. That's the way God is with us when we head home. It says he ran. Now, this father, we, we understand had a couple of adult children. So he's probably in his 40s or 50s, okay? And men of that stage of life generally try to maintain a sense of decorum and dignity. I mean, such a father standing on our front porch, seeing his rebel round the corner, might just have waited for the son to approach him. Not this Even though he was clearly wealthy, had servants at his beck and call, he threw decorum out the window and gave himself over over to the utter joy of his heart. That's the way God is about you coming home. He embraced him and kissed him. Now, by God's justice, what reaction did the prodigal deserve? And if we didn't know that this father represented our father, this parable might have said, that the father ran and slapped or kicked his worthless son. Instead, the father showed mercy by not giving the prodigal what he deserved. My hope is that you and I would do the same if a lost one would come home, home from sin, from alienation, from unbelief, from hard-heartedness. What would it be like to see brokenness in their face and reach out and embrace them and kiss them? God in his perfect justice is also perfect mercy and love. God does not hold us at arm's length. Jesus does not include these vivid, emotion-laden details. He did not have to, but he wants us to feel something here, know it and feel it the way that God welcomes lost home when sinners come to him and he gives them a loving and hearty welcome. And finally, celebrate. The son makes his confession. And the father said to his slaves, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And here's the lavish welcome of the father. His best robe, the robe of sonship, not slavery. The robe of full, enthusiastic, unrestrained restoration of their family. That is the way the father is when you and I come home he said bring the fattened calf kill it let us eat and be merry and when Jesus received the tax collectors and the sinners and ate with them it is the gladness of the father gathering his lost children and Martin Luther once said that if I could believe that God was not angry with me I would stand on my head for joy the gospel really is too good to be true what do you hear when the father says, the son of mine was dead and has come to life again? He was lost and is, not found, is now found. If anyone here does not know that you're saved, but you want to know that you're saved, as Andrew was speaking of earlier, and you want to decide in your heart to come to God on His terms, accept His mercy because of His great sacrifice of His Son for all of us as sinners, not because of us deserving it, this shall be true for you as it is for many of us. So here's the main message of this powerful story. There is celebration, not condemnation, when a lost child comes home with repentance. It's the perfect picture of God's grace the prodigal got what he did not deserve that's what true believers receive through faith in Christ and they find their way home into the open arms of a loving and a forgiving God okay let's turn now to the prideful unforgiving self-righteous bitter child because this is a child. I mentioned last month that during his incarnation, Jesus didn't have too many kind words for the scribes and Pharisees. He rightly pointed out their hypocrisy. But you could say that this passage could be called an exception because here Jesus expresses something we do not express. Let me read it to you starting at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And they said to him, "'Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound.' But the son was angry, refused refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends.' But when his, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. His father wants to celebrate, but his problems aren't over yet. He's, now he's got to contend with this older son who is angry sitting on the porch of merit because he thinks he's earned his father's favor but is not being rewarded. So he refuses to walk into the celebration of mercy and grace toward his younger, repentant brother. The amazing thing here is that in great patience and tenderness, his father reaches out to this bitter and resentful son as lovingly as a father can. First, he moves toward him. When he hears of his anger, he doesn't send a servant to get him. He doesn't holler at him from a distance and demand that he come into the house to celebrate. He goes himself. His father came out. God the Father sent his son to save hypocrites as well as harlots. Likewise, we should never dismiss or give up on a self-righteous or judgmental child. If we can forgive a child who repents of the sin of self indulgence, we can forgive a child who repents of a sin of self righteousness. The father came out and began entreating him. Now, the son said that his father was a command giver and he was a command keeper. But the father's entreating here, he's not commanding. And Paul demonstrates the difference between commanding and entreating. Uh, in the book of Philemon and there he wrote though i am bold enough in christ to command you to do what is required yet for love's sake i prefer to entreat you in other words paul was had the authority to command philemon to welcome back his runaway slave onesimus but instead he chose to appeal and entreat in order as it says in the passage that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. The father wanted his son's heart. Now, let's go back to child rearing here. There's a time for commands uh, when a three-year-old in the grocery aisle defiantly asks, why not, when told he cannot have another injection of sugar, the most expedient answer might just be, because I'm the mom. But that answer doesn't suffice as they grow older. The very young must be taught the moral reason why they should obey, so that when they reach adulthood and the parents no longer have any authority, the young will have a fully developed guidance system of their own, and one to which, when they err, others may appeal and restore, as it teaches in Galatians 6. Parents who rely upon a single drumbeat of command with older children will often lose relationship and effectiveness, which will often carry over when they're young, leave the home. Father, in this parable, was wooing, appealing, pleading, yearning, not commanding. He didn't want performance by compulsion, rather a changed heart. The father here reminds his child that he is his. My child, you are always with me. And most translations use the word son, but the Greek word for son, which is used eight times in this passage, is not used here. This is a different Greek word, which is more intimate and tender. It speaks of a child. He's not belittling him. He's speaking endearingly. And so this is where you can imagine the tears welling up in the father's eyes, thinking of the conflicting feelings he's experiencing when he's confronted by a son enraged at the celebration over the the finding of his lost rebel son as memories come of two little boys playing joyfully together. This self-righteous son is just as much of a child of his father as the younger rebel. The older child just needs to be reminded that he's a son, not a slave, command keeper the father says you're always with me with me and so it seems like the deepest void in this older son's life was that this was not precious to him being with his father every night for supper running the estate with him was simply for some reason not a joy to him perhaps the older son was jealous that his younger brother is now being rewarded for the very things that he wanted to do go out and enjoy the temporal pleasures of the world. And Jesus does tell us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. But perhaps he really just wanted to party with his friends, not with his father. We don't know the answers to those questions. But the point here is that a jealous, bitter, judgmental, self-righteous family member needs relationship as much as anyone. And finally, he reminds the son of his love. My child, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours the prodigal has already taken his share all the remain would go to the son the father loves his son just as much as he does the prodigal jesus doesn't tell us whether the older son will remain forever on the porch with the slaves or come into the table of mercy and grace uh, with his repentant brother yes Jesus has some strong warnings about scribes and Pharisees. Yet in this parable, there is tenderness even for them. Now, just as many of God's chosen have rejected Christ, sometimes it is the compliant child, the one who follows the rules, who is underneath passively rebellious, They may be the ones who are most likely to rebel or become judgmental when you show mercy and grace to other children. So the message of the parable ends with tenderness toward both brothers. He says to them, come in from the foreign country of self-indulgence and misery. Come in from the porch of merit and misery. Both are deadly, but inside the banquet there is forgiveness, fellowship, joy, and grace with an all-satisfying Father. I mentioned earlier that um, this is a tough one for me. You see, Chrissy and I had a prodigal. And I can tell you that... It was the most emotionally distressing experience of my life. Because I felt like a failure as a father. But God is so good. And he brought restoration. We didn't follow all these things. In fact, the one thing I wish we'd done more was to celebrate when the prodigal returned much more than we did. In our situation, what we did was, we asked for a trusted uh, Christian counselor to come in and talk to our family. And if you know about our family, it was a big meeting, including the prodigal. And she helped me understand that, yeah, I've been an imperfect dad, but the prodigal is responsible for the prodigal's decisions. Then at one point, one of the family members asked the question, what do we do with the pain that we've all felt? And that counselor said, You drop it. You forgive. Why? Because you've been forgiven. Hey, that's it. Stand with me, please. If you can bring that up while the worship team comes up, we've got a passage here. Out of the same chapter, here we go. All right, together. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one who is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven